My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. So glad you're joining me as we continue our journey through Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be picking up at verse 30 today. And this is after Jesus has had the opportunity to reveal Judas as the betrayer. Judas has left. Jesus has then had his new institution of communion with the remaining disciples. And he finishes teaching them about the new... uh, Passover meal that's no longer going to be a reminder of, of the children of Israel being saved from Egypt. It's now going to be about the whole world being saved by Jesus and through his broken body and his blood being shed. So we pick up in verse 30. After this is finished, Jesus is finished speaking. And we read something very interesting in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is not talked about a lot. They sung a hymn. We don't often think about Jesus singing, but he did. We know that he did. Why? Because during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, during all the feasts, uh, but the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which preceded the Feast of the Passover, there were all these songs that were sung. What songs were sung? From the Psalms. What what David had, had written about the Messiah. So that's what they would sing every year. So we know Jesus was a singer. Jesus loved to worship. He was worshiping the Father after he's just realized that he's about to be broken for everybody. And I think we can think about, I don't know if you've ever been in church and somebody's standing next to you singing and sometimes they have an amazing voice and you're like, oh, that's just so nice. I just want to listen to their voice. And then sometimes you're like, oh, Lord, let me get through worship because like this this person, I mean, they love you, Lord, but... They are so off key. There are, there, I'm sure there are cats dying, uh, around this building right now. Um, there's a reality that I would have loved to have heard Jesus singing voice, but he would have sung with all of his passion, I believe. And I always say to people, when you worship, when you sing in worship, sing like Jesus, which means sing as the most passionate version of you. Don't sing passively. Sing passionately. Now, your version of a passionate you might be different than my version of a passionate me, but you and I should both be the most passionate we can be when we worship Jesus, which reminds us, Jesus reminds us to praise God with singing. That's why singing is an important part of a church service. The Apostle Paul said that you should start off every service singing spiritual songs. So if you say, oh, I don't like the singing part, well, get over it and start liking the singing part. And you start singing. And you get to church on time for the singing. Instead of saying, oh, I only care about the message. You know what I only care about the message means? I only care about what I get fed. It's the most selfish approach to a church service you can ever take is I only care about the message. You should care about the singing and worship because that's when you give to God praise and worship. The message is when he then gives to you. So there you go. Jesus has this remarkable opportunity to sing the night before his crucifixion. Could you sing the night before you were about to die on a cross? Jesus is our true worship leader. We should sing to God our Father just as Jesus did. When you love somebody, you want to do the things that pleases them. It pleases God for us to worship him. 
You and I may not understand that in the fullness of what it means. We will one day when we get to heaven. It doesn't matter whether it pleases us or not. It's matter whether it pleases God. Morgan said this, No sweeter singing, no mightier music ever sounded amid the darkness of the sad world's night than the singing of Jesus and his first disciples as they moved out to the cross of his passion and their redemption. And they sung a hymn. So we actually do know what hymn Jesus would have been singing. We know it uh, because the Passover meal always ended with the singing of three psalms that were known as the Hallel, uh, Psalm 116 to Psalm 118. So I want to read to you some of the words that Jesus would have been singing in this moment. In this moment, this is exactly what he would have been singing. Okay. Psalm 116, the pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the hand of the living. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Lord him, all you peoples. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Lane said this, When Jesus arose to go to Gethsemane, these words of Psalm 118 were the last words that had come out of his mouth. And it provided an appropriate description of how God was guide his Messiah son through the distress and the suffering to the glory of the cross. Spurgeon said this, If, beloved, you knew that at, say, 10 o'clock tonight, you would be led away to be mocked, despised and scourged, and that tomorrow's son would see you falsely accused, hanging a convicted criminal to die upon a cross, do you think that you could sing those words tonight after your last meal? Great question. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble, all of you disciples, because of me this night. Why? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after... This is after, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. 
and he said it to all the disciples, boastfully, no doubt. Jesus said, all of you are going to just stumble this night. It wasn't actually to condemn the disciples. It was to show them that he was really in control of the situation. He knew what was going to happen. And he was demonstrating the scriptures regarding the suffering of the Messiah must be fulfilled. It just, it, it has to happen. Uh, what, what was going to be spoken about from Zechariah chapter 13 had to be fulfilled. So Peter says, even if I have to die with you, Jesus has just said, after I'm going to be raised, okay? They're still not listening to him, by the way, saying that. (laughs) Um, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter was so unaware of his own weak spots, which is just like us. Jesus saw a spiritual battle coming before all the disciples. They didn't see it. Peter felt brave enough in the moment with Jesus in his presence but he couldn't perceive what it was going to be like afterwards. And so he was very soon going to be intimidated by just a humble servant girl. And and Peter was going to deny Jesus very, very quickly. I think that's like a lot of Christians today. When they're in church, they're like, I will never deny you. God, I will do whatever you ask me to do. And then they go to work the next day and, and they're getting a cup of coffee and and somebody says, what did you do yesterday? And you're not telling them about how your life was changed by church yesterday and how you're living for Jesus. No. And if somebody said, so you don't really believe all that religious stuff that you go to church every Sunday for. Well, you know, I, I believe most of it. And, I'm, and we compromise immediately. And in our hearts, we're like, oh, what am I? why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? No, let's not be like Peter. Let's not be tragically unaware of our weakness. So Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you that before the rooster cries, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew that Peter would fail in an area that he thought he was strong in, which was courage and boldness. Because Peter's like, I'm full of courage. Nobody's ever going to stop me. But through this warning, he was actually giving Peter an opportunity to listen to him, but he didn't listen. And he says, if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. Jesus knew more than Peter did about Peter. And Peter was setting himself up for a fall. Now, the rest of the disciples also overestimated their strength. And they didn't rely on the Lord because he said it to all 11 of them. Now, let's talk about the rooster, the rooster crowing. I'm going to read to you because this is, this is something that is misunderstood. And I think this is important for us to not misunderstand. When you go to Israel, I'll take you to the south western corner of the uh, Temple Mount and tell you this story. But because not all of you have been there, I'm going to read it to you now. This is quoting from an Assemblies of God article written on May the 2nd, 2016 uh, by the uh, Executive Director of the Centre for Holy Land Studies. The Mishnah The earliest compilation of rabbinic oral law states that roosters and chickens may not be raised in Jerusalem due to purity concerns. So if roosters were not permitted to be raised in Jerusalem, are the Gospels wrong? The Greek term elector, used in Luke 22.34, which means cock, can also mean a man or a husband. Thus, one can read the Greek of the Gospels as the man will not cry out today before you deny three times that you know me. This indicates that the Gospels did not 
mistakenly place a rooster in Jerusalem when roosters were not allowed to be raised in the city, but it does not answer the question as to what Jesus referred to. The ancient Jewish sources offer a solution. In describing the activities that went on in the Jerusalem temple, the Mishnah references a specific time in the early morning. Quote, He that was minded to clean the altar of ashes rose up early and immersed himself before the officer came. At what time did he come? Not always at the same time. Sometimes he came at cockcrow and sometimes a little sooner or later. Cockrow refers to the early morning time when the priests began to prepare the temple that day for the daily visitors. Every day they used to remove the ashes from the altar at cockcrow or near to it, either before it or after it. It does not mean the crow of a rooster, but rather the blast from a trumpet at the temple that announced the time. At cockcrow they blew a sustained uh, a quavering and another sustained blast of the trumpet. In other words, a cockcrow refers to a time early in the morning when a trumpet signaled the beginning of the day for work in the temple. The Hebrew expression for cockcrow is kerot, hogever, which means the call of the cock. The Hebrew word gever, translated as cock, also means man, the same as the Greek elector does. The Gospels then preserved the Jewish Hebrew manner for speaking of the trumpet blast sounded from the temple that announced to the priests it was time to begin preparing the temple for the day. Jesus did not refer to a random rooster, but rather to a specific time in the morning which Peter would have understood. And the Gospels also offer the earliest witness mentioning Crockrow in Jerusalem. Excavations along the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uncovered a stone bearing a Hebrew description that said, To the place of the trumpeting. Scholars have suggested that this stone marked an area of the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount facing towards the city, where priests would blow the trumpets announcing the different times of day and the week. And it seems reasonable that this stone marked the location from which the cockcrow sounded. So... Sometimes a rooster is not a rooster. Let's move on to verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is just a few hundred yards east of the Temple Mount. In Jerusalem, and it's across the the ravine, the Brook Kidron, and on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. So here he is, surrounded by these olive trees in Gethsemane, and Gethsemane just means olive press. That's what it means. And there, the olives from the neighborhood were crushed and pressed for their oil. And how the Son of God was going to be crushed and pressed right there. How how incredibly appropriate. And Jesus Himself becomes. Sorrowful and deeply distressed, exceedingly, because he knew the horror of the cross that was awaiting him. 
And as he came to Gethsemane and he walked down from the central center of Jerusalem, he sees the full moon of the Passover stream and it's flowing red with the sacrificial blood from the temple. The, the Greek tells us that Jesus had the greatest sorrow imaginable as he said these words. Jesus wasn't actually so much concerned with the physical horror of the cross. He was thinking about the spiritual horror that was going to come over him on the cross. Because Jesus, a man who knew no sin, was about to know sin because he was going to take on the sin of the world. He was going to receive all the punishment that everybody including you and I, deserved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin would become sin for us. Jesus didn't die a martyr. He died knowing that his death was the Father's will and that he had to face it alone. He had to receive the wrath of his Father, the righteous wrath. It was right. Somebody had to pay the price. And his death was unique. His anguish was unique. And this was a moment of incredible agony where God the Father sent special help to his son. I'm sure the pain of the Father watching the son go through agony, knowing that this is the only way for redemption of mankind. And he sends angels to minister to Jesus in the garden. Why? Because the disciples were useless. The disciples were meant to be there to help cover him in prayer. Jesus says these words, if it is possible. Now all things are possible, but that's only true in a certain sense because there are certain things that are morally impossible for God. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6. It's impossible for us to please God without faith, Hebrews 11. It is not morally possible for God to atone for sin and redeem humanity apart from a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus had to prepare himself in the Garden of Gethsemane as the perfect sacrifice. And he says, if this cup can pass from me, God the Father was never going to deny any request from God the Son. But Jesus was praying here according to the heart and the will of his Father. Jesus was going to drink the cup of judgment at the cross. And he knew that it was not possible for salvation to come to many without him doing that. And that's why salvation at the cross through Jesus, is the only way. If there was any other way for us to be made right before God, then what Jesus did on the cross was unnecessary and not enough. So, repeatedly, we look at the, the word cup in the Old Testament as a powerful picture of wrath and judgment. Let me read to you some scriptures. Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. 
Isaiah 51, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jeremiah 25, for thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Jesus had to become on the cross the enemy of God by taking on the sin of the world who was judged and he and Jesus was going to be forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that you and I wouldn't have to. This was the source of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's almost like a rhetorical prayer, if this cup can be taken from me, but I know that it can't be. Yet he says it three times. That shows the level of anguish and sorrow that he was in as he was realizing that he had to yield himself at that moment. He was unafraid of death. And when he had finished his work on the cross, the work of taking on the sin of the world and becoming the righteous atoning sacrifice, when he finished that, he just yielded himself to death as his choice. And he says what I believe the greatest words for you and for I personally. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let me make that personal. Nevertheless, if it's the only way that Linda can be saved, I will die for Linda. Nevertheless, if it is the only way for Paul to enter into the kingdom of heaven, I will die on the cross and drink this cup. Nevertheless, if it is the only way for insert your name here, I will do it. The struggle of Gethsemane, David Guzik says, this place of crushing has an important place in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. If Jesus fails here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have failed at the cross, but his success here made victory at the cross possible. And this was the struggle of Gethsemane that led to the struggle of the cross. The struggle in Gethsemane was won by Jesus through prayer. Jesus fell on his face and he prayed. Now, let me just finish up with my own observations. Gethsemane is my, uh, I, I, I want to say, one of my favorite places in Israel because it's where Jesus said, if it's the only place, the only way for me to save Anthony Paul Richards, nevertheless, I will do it. I will do it for Anthony. Jesus had an attitude of even though he was facing the most extremely sorrowful time by fulfilling the will of the Father, he was willing to say the words nevertheless. And I think we as Christians need to say nevertheless a lot more. I don't think we say it enough. I think we say, God, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, and then we hope he will. We don't ever finish the second half of the prayer. Nevertheless, if it's what you want me to do, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll say it. I won't do it. I won't say it. I won't go. Whatever he's asking. Nevertheless, all the time is what we should be saying to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Jesus' name, let us remember that he inserted our name as he said, nevertheless. 
Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.